0: Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today, we are joined by a familiar guest. We have Melba Pearson back on the podcast. Melba, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Emily.
0: It's always a pleasure. So listeners, just a refresher, Melba Pearson is the policy director at the Center for the Administration of Justice with Florida International University. Melba also serves on the Criminal Justice Sections Council and is also co chair of our Prosecution Function Committee. So, certainly keeps busy. And I know you're also involved in some other organizations as well, like the National Black Prosecutors Association, right? And some others.
1: Yeah, keeps me out of trouble. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of trouble, that's what Melba's here to help us talk about today, not Melva's trouble, but by now you and everyone you know has heard about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. And no, we're not going to dissect that incident today, but we are going to talk about assault because the questions that people were left with following witnessing that are fairly relevant to our listeners and to our podcast. And so we're going to talk about assault versus battery and prosecution and We're just going to talk about these things in a broad context. Yes, we saw an example of this and it left many people with questions that we're hoping to address, but it's not a perfect example with everything we're going to flesh out today. And certainly we've seen other celebrities have incidents that may be considered assault, like depending on how old you are, you may recall Britney Spears attacking a photographer's car with an umbrella, Alec Baldwin's had a couple of altercations. Kanye West, a while back, had a confrontation with paparazzi and was actually charged with one misdemeanor count of batteries. So, you know, a familiar thing. We've seen several examples of this, but the questions remain the same. And that's what we're going to talk about to help clarify for everyone today. And Melba's going to help us with that. So thank you again, Melba, for joining us. Let's just start at the beginning of this. The first question that I saw all over Twitter myself was, was that assault? (laughs) (laughs) And if it's not assault, what is the difference between assault and battery? And why does that matter?
1: Yeah. So first things first, every state has different laws, which is the bane of most attorneys existence, because, as you know, you have to take the bar in order to be able to practice for the most part, except for some few exceptions. So the definitions of assault and battery may differ from state to state. I will say that in Florida, where I'm located, an assault is basically when you threaten someone. It's words versus action. So assault could be me threatening to harm you in some way. You know, Emily, I don't like the way you talked about the dress I was wearing at, you know, CGS Spring. So I'm going to, you know, yell at you and tell you, listen, when I catch you, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, right? So that can be a form of assault. Battery is normally known as what we saw at the Oscars when you basically put your hands on someone. It is an unwanted touching of another human being. Basically, you did not consent to the person putting hands on you. So that's generally the difference between assault and battery. However, you know, you look at New York, assault is defined as actually hitting someone, right? So that's kind of what makes things a little confusing. So it all depends on the state that you're located in and what their laws say as to whether or not an action is an assault or it's a battery.
0: Okay. Thank you. And I'll be sure to keep your dress out of my mouth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> keep your dress so, out of your mouth. Yes. <laughs> so, but thank you, though. It's a wonderful explanation, but a very complex answer for anyone to keep track of. Let's talk about, you know, these other questions around, you know, seemingly no consequences. This is an interesting scenario. Again, not a perfect example, but just because it's the most recent one for many of us looking on, it looks like nothing's happening with Will Smith. He's not getting any charges brought against him. Chris Rock is not bringing any charges against him. And, you know, in a general sense, this is sort of a question. We saw this recent incident in the news of a woman pushing an elderly woman in New York city. And then that fall ended up leading to her death, which is, you know, that takes it to a whole other level, but if it's just scenario where nobody brings charges forward, then will they still be prosecuted? What is the prosecutor's duty or law enforcement's duty when a victim does not press charges?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Emily, and it's a complicated one. So for instance, I would say the most clearest example of This push and pull between what the victim or survivor wants in terms of accountability, if at all, versus sort of the greater picture of accountability, how laws are upheld and fairness, all those types of concepts, is when you talk about domestic violence cases. So many times you have situations where the person that is trapped in an abusive relationship may not be willing to press charges as of yet. They're just not at that place. It could be for a number of reasons because they don't feel safe or they don't have an exit strategy or they're still grappling with their love for their abuser and haven't gotten to that place of, I need to completely be free of this person. So you'll have situations. And i'm a former domestic violence prosecutor where you will see the same couple over and over again where the police respond to their house you know there's an arrest made or maybe there isn't but you know maybe the neighbors come forward or something along those lines and the same couple will come in and out of the system, and you have a situation where either the survivor doesn't want to testify, and so the case never gets filed, or the case does in fact get filed but ends up being dropped later on because you can't move forward without the participation of the survivor. So that is a common issue that prosecutors' offices deal with across the country, because at the end of the day, you still want to allow survivors to have their own autonomy over what they need to be whole. And maybe for them, it's just about moving on. You think about in this scenario with Chris Rock and Will Smith, you know, he may be like, listen, if I press charges, that may end up causing more fallout for me professionally than not, so let me just leave it alone. Or maybe he realized that, yeah, maybe my joke did step over the lines of propriety. I don't know. And I'm not opining on any of those things. But maybe he felt like, listen, yeah, I get why he was upset. Let's just, you know, leave it alone. So, you know, prosecutors could still move forward. You know, the police were ready to arrest is the reports we were getting from the Oscars. But because Chris Rock declined to press charges, it would have been a misdemeanor because of the fact that Chris Rock was, to the best of our knowledge, was not injured. He didn't have a broken jaw, broken nose, anything like that. You know, maybe a little soreness, a lot of hurt pride, but he had no physical injury. So in all likelihood, this would have been a misdemeanor charge. So in that instance, the police and the prosecutors probably don't see the utility in going forward, even though, yes, the crime was on video. Everybody saw it, right? Everybody saw the reaction of Chris Rock, so it was clear there wasn't consent. But in the bigger picture, was it worthwhile to expend taxpayer dollars and resources, the resources of the police department, the resources of the prosecutor's office to pursue a case where the victim does not want to move forward. Most would argue that depending on the circumstances, that is a waste of time. When it comes to broader issues, let's say around domestic violence, Prosecutors may make the decision to go forward despite the survivor not wanting to move forward because of the fact that there's greater implications for community safety and public well being.
0: Sure. Thank you very much for that. And so, if we were to see something like this on the street, I really appreciate that you called out that yes, it was on video. Everybody around the world saw it. So, there's plenty of witnesses, plenty of other people that could have confirmed that. What about? like I said, if there was, what if it was even just random strangers on the street fighting like after a game, let's say, you know, your team lost and you get into an altercation that leads to a physical contact, unwanted physical contact. And there's a lot of, there's a surveillance camera, there's a crowd, lots of people can verify what happened. But one of the people involved doesn't want to press charges is this the same sort of scenario where you're speaking to resources and would this get put forward by prosecution or would it be again not necessarily deemed worth the resources
1: i think that's a scenario emily that prosecutors would say is not worth the resources because again you have also the issue of proving the case beyond a reasonable doubt to the jury if you don't have the victim Slash survivor in court to testify and say this is what happened to me. No, I didn't consent to it. Here's how it you know made me feel. Here's the after effects of what happened, and also here's what led up to that point. Because again, unlike what we saw at the Oscars, we kind of saw the whole thing unfold, so we know what led up to it, and we somewhat know the aftermath. As opposed to when you come upon two people fighting in the street. You don't know who was the initial aggressor. You don't know what happened beforehand. And sometimes the surveillance video, again, they may be capturing images, but they don't necessarily capture sound. So let's say it's a scenario where two people are fighting after a game, but maybe the person that is losing the fight made a racial slur beforehand. And that's what the person responded to. You know, so there's all these different nuances that can't be revealed if the victim survivor isn't there to come forward and speak about what happened. So that's why prosecutors often will uh, shy away from going to trial on those cases. Because again, there's too many unknowns and too many ways for this to go sideways.
0: Okay, thank you. So, this conversation really highlights the importance of victims, you know, if that's what they want, like you were speaking to, if that's what they need to make themselves whole or, you know, if public safety isn't another concern if they choose not to press charges, but let's look at another example of say, Ghislaine Maxwell that we've seen in the news. So, you know, we, we talked about this on our podcast recently that her attorneys filed for a mistrial because one of the jurors had, after the conviction was delivered, they, in a media interview, disclosed that they were a survivor of sexual assault themselves or sexual abuse. And so now in retrospect, they're saying they didn't disclose that during the proceedings and that needed to be known. And so that was called into question. And there's this concern about whether the victims would want to participate in the trial again. And again, you know, like the victims had to be there and ready to testify in this case against Ghislaine Maxwell, and or even the case we saw against Larry Nassar with the Olympic women's gymnastics team. So, Melba, again, just if you would elaborate. I know you've already been speaking to this, but let's just talk about the importance of the victims and their participation, and those concerns and things that the prosecutors have to be mindful of as they move forward on pressing charges or putting forward a prosecution.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, you have to be very conscious of re-traumatizing the victim, right? That's the last thing you want to do. They already went through probably the worst experience in their life, and now they have to get up and talk about it. And not just once, but they may have to talk about it during a deposition. They may need to talk about it during a pretrial hearing. They certainly have to talk about it to you as the prosecutor in your office as you prepare them for trial, as you prepare them for various hearings as you even decide to file charges, right? So you have to be mindful that this is a tough ask for people. And then you also have to think about the fact that every time they come in to testify or to come meet with you at your office, whatever the case may be, they need to take off work. They have to find childcare. So you have to think about all of these burdens that participation in a criminal justice case and a criminal case entails, and in doing so, you need to be sensitive when it comes to making decisions with regards to accepting a plea, right? Because you know that, the let's say if you know that your survivor does not really want to go to trial on this case or will likely fall apart on the stand, you probably want to encourage and find some sort of resolution, right, short of a trial. We think about now, for instance, the survivors in the Cosby case and how they are now sort of left in limbo because of the fact that they got this conviction, but then the Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturned it because of the fact that the original prosecutor on the case had sworn or had promised that if he gave truthful testimony in his deposition in a civil case, no criminal charges would result. And then the subsequent elected prosecutor came in and reneged on that deal. So, you know, clearly that was problematic from a constitutional standpoint but it was also problematic for the survivors because again they went through this whole process bared themselves went through this traumatic process and then weren't able to get closure the same thing when we think about the you know, victims and victims rights when we think about the jeffrey epstein case and you know much was made and rightfully so of you know the then us attorney in florida that okayed a plea, a very sweetheart plea that involved a probation and and no incarceration time for Jeffrey Epstein without consulting with and informing the victims. So they were incredibly angry to later find out that he had basically escaped any real accountability and was free to continue to molest and abuse women and girls with impunity until The case moved forward, I believe it was in New York. So these are all aspects that prosecutors have to think about and centering the needs of the victim and survivor, just making sure that we're not re traumatizing them and that we're being very strategic about how and when survivors have to appear and testify.
0: All right. Thank you, Melba. Wonderful examples to help illustrate that and flesh that out for us. So I guess you know, as one of the bystanders of what happened that addresses many of the questions that I saw or that I felt like I saw online, is there anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners as they see something like this? I'm sure it won't be the last time we see something that raises questions like this in the future in the news, you know, whether it's celebrity or just a prominent situation, anything we should, that can help us navigate it.
1: I think number one, we have to be mindful of our own mental health from the standpoint of this incident literally sucked all the air out of the room on social media everywhere for a solid two weeks. This is seeing images like that can be triggering for some people, especially if they experience violence or grew up around violence. These discussions are sometimes can be very caustic I saw some very ugly debates in the comments on LinkedIn on on a number of different platforms as people are very staunch in their viewpoints, either supporting one over the other. I think it's just important for people to realize that things aren't always black and white. There are nuances behind the scenes that people aren't aware of. And also give yourself permission to tune out to decide that, you know what, I'm just not going to engage. I'm not going to go on social media while this thing is still trending to preserve my peace and my mental state. Um, I I think that's just really important to center because especially the folks who are, and I know there were some folks watching all of this unfold who were struggling with hair loss as a result of various medical conditions. And they may find this triggering as well because the whole origin was uh, about a joke that, was basically making fun of someone who's struggling with a medical condition. Again, rightfully, wrongfully so. Again, did he know, did he not know? That's a whole separate discussion. But for folks who may be going through those experiences or maybe close to someone who's going through those experiences, you may want to decide not to engage and not to even look at social media until this whole thing is over.
0: Yep, wise words. Compassion fatigue can come in many different forms. It's important to take care of yourself for sure. So thank you, Melba. Again, not trying to drag out the conversation around this, but important questions to be answered. So thank you for helping us. Again, as I said, this is just one instance and there are others that many of us feel like we've seen in our lives, whether it's on a personal level, on the national production level of some major event. And listeners, once again, This is Melba Pearson, Policy Director at the Center for the Administration of Justice with Florida International University. Melba also serves on the CJS Council and is co-chair of our Prosecution Function Committee. So thank you again, and thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pop.